Amen. As we stand, let's pray. Uh, Father God, we praise you that you are a God who speaks uh, and that you're a God uh, who delights to reveal yourself to your people. So speak to us now as we come to your word, we pray, and do us good by the mighty power of your spirit. For we ask in your son's name. Amen. And well, please do sit down. Uh, let me add my welcome to that of Nick. My name's John T. I'm the minister here. It's so good to have so many new faces with us this week. We hope you feel really at home really quickly, uh, at least with the people, but not in the building, uh, as we will be gone uh, in a couple of hours' time. Uh, one of our habits here at Christchurch is to preach through books of the Bible, and we've just started the book of Romans. So if you could come with me to that letter, Romans, we're still in chapter 1. So if you're here for the first time, you're right at the beginning of the series, Romans chapter 1, and I'm going to read from verse, I'm actually going to read from verse 16, I think. I think the sheet says 18, but I'm going to read from verse 16, we'll be thinking about verses 18 through 32. So let's hear the the voice of the Holy Spirit as he speaks to us through his word. Romans 1 verse 16, for I am not ashamed of the gospel. For it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honour him as God or give thanks to him. But they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools, and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonouring of their bodies among themselves, Because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. For their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty. For their error. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They're full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They're gossip, slanderous, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. 
Therefore, you have no excuse. This letter of Romans has a good claim, as we said over the last couple of weeks, to be the single most important letter ever written. Not just the most important letter in the Christian church, but a world-changing letter. And if you've been with us the last couple of weeks, you'll have seen that in his introduction, Paul, the apostle, this representative of Jesus, was bursting with excitement to get to Rome, a city he'd never visited, and preach the gospel to them. He just, he can't wait to preach the gospel to, to those who've never heard it before and to those who have. The gospel children, you might remember, just means good news. Paul is tremendously excited. But when I say that to you, how excited do you feel? When we said a couple of weeks ago, we're about to start teaching through the book of Romans. My suspicion is not many of people kind of whooped with excitement. Not many of you jumped out of bed this morning desperate to get to church. Now, lovely if you did. That's fantastic. But if we're honest, many of us don't share quite... Paul's zeal, his enthusiasm, his excitement for the gospel. And Paul knows that. Paul knows that. The gospel is good news. But Paul knows that human beings like you and me, whether we're Christians or not, don't see the excitement, the wonder of this message. And Paul is a pastor So what he's going to do is spend about two and a half chapters of this letter, beginning with the bit we're looking at this morning, trying to persuade us why we need the good news. And to do that, he's essentially going to tell us some tremendously bad news. He's not doing it to depress us. He's not doing it because he he likes being a kind of fire and brimstone type preacher who wants to crush everybody. He's certainly not doing it. To, to try and let everyone else know they're utter scumbags, unlike him, the great apostle. No, he's firmly including himself in the diagnosis that we'll walk through over the next few weeks. But he is, as it were, turning the darkness up. If you can turn darkness up. What if you've ever been in a room uh, where someone's trying to show, uh, a, a project something on the wall? It used to be OHPs, whatever they're called nowadays, you know, proper projectors. Uh, and, you know, the, the light streaming in the windows, the, 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 the overhead lights are on, and you just can't really see the screen. What, what do you do? Well, to make the light clearer, sometimes what you need to do is make the surrounding darker. Close the curtains, switch off the lights. Paul is switching off the lights of any attempt we might make to convince ourselves that we don't really need the good news, the gospel, he's about to explain. The whole thing is driving this little section towards chapter 3 and verse 20, where he says, by the works of the law, in other words, by what we do, no one, no human being, will be justified in God's sight. Very simply, if you think you can save yourself, you are kidding, says Paul. That's why you need this gospel. That's why you need this good news. But I know you don't think you really do. And so today in particular, the section we're looking at, he wants to drive home one simple point, which is there is no excuse 
There is no excuse. Do you see that there in verse uh, 20 of chapter 1? Uh, towards the end of the verse. So they, and that's all humanity, the people he's talking about in this section I just read is all human beings. They are without excuse. Or the beginning of chapter 2. Therefore you have no excuse. Uh, and what I want to try and persuade you of this morning is that it's both tremendously bad news and incredibly good news. It may not seem it, but it's also incredibly good news. Uh, two ways Paul drives home the bad news. First, he deals with what we do. This is verses 18 through 25, what we do. And there are two key words, the first of which is the word suppress. Verse 18, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who, by their unrighteousness, suppress the truth. The problem with everybody, says Paul, I don't care if you're a Jew or not a Jew, a Gentile, so that's everybody. The problem is not that you don't know the truth, but that you suppress it. Children, to suppress something is to, to hide it, to try and keep it down. Have you ever been in a swimming pool and, and had a, a big kind of um, a beach ball or something like that or a football and try to push it under the water? It's always trying to pop up again, isn't it? And if you let your hand off it, it kind of zooms up over here and then you desperately try and push it under the water again and it pops up over here. And Paul says, we're like that in our knowledge of God. He's willing to say, verse 21, that all of us know God, although they knew God. Not just knew about him, had heard the word God, but that all human beings, without exception, wherever they've lived on earth and whenever they've lived on earth, all of them know the true God. That knowing word is a personal word. It's not just a kind of academic thing like I, I know the capital of France is Paris. It is a kind of relational knowledge. But we suppress it. So to put it another way, God does not believe in atheists. Jordan, an atheist is someone who says they don't believe in God. And God says back, I don't believe you. You do know me. And so instantly we want to say, well, how? That's not right. How can everybody know God? Not everyone's a Christian. And Paul says, no, absolutely, that is right. Not everybody is a Christian. So how do they know God? Well, verse 19, four, here's the reason. What can be known about God is plain to them, plain to everyone, because God has shown it to them. We'll go on, Paul. Where have you shown, where has God shown himself? Paul says, well, first of all, let me tell you what he has shown you. Verse 20, his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power, his divine nature, have been clearly perceived. What has God shown to everybody? Basically, who he is and what he's like. In many ways, we're skating over this passage like a kind of water boatman on a pond. We can't delve into the depths uh, we might spend weeks probably just on these verses. It's an incredible analysis of human society and human history. But Paul's really clear in verse 20 that, that the kind of nature of God, who he is and what he's like, 
is perceived, is known by everybody. Now note what he's not saying. He's not saying everybody knows the gospel. Everybody knows that Jesus died and rose again. No, everybody knows what God is like, who he is. And later on, he'll say, everyone knows how we're meant to live. He hasn't said that yet, but he'll say it later. How do they know? Well, it's there at the end of verse 20. Ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. We know from the world around us, the universe around us. Children, if you've ever been to an art gallery, uh, you'll know perhaps that very often great artists will sign their paintings in the corner. Paul says, every time you look out into the world, you should see God's signature. You see an oak tree and it's signed God. You look up into the star uh, in the sky and see the stars. They've got God's signature on them. Uh, You look at your fingernails, the tiny hairs on the back of your hand, uh, the cells, the billions of cells that make up your body. And each one has the signature made by God. That's what in the history of church is sometimes been called general revelation. General because it goes to everybody. It's not saving. It's not the gospel. Um, some, you might know the song, uh, Jesus is Lord, creation's voice proclaims it. I, I mean, it's, it's a lovely song and everything, but I'm, I'm not sure creation's voice does proclaim that Jesus is Lord. That's not what Paul's saying. You can't look at the oak trees and work out that the Son of God was born in a manger lived for you, died for you, and rose again. But you can, says Paul, and everybody does, know instinctively God exists. It is just revealed. Now, again, he's not saying, and I think sometimes people read these verses and say, ah, yes. If you're a really clever scientist, and you can follow these kind of quite complex arguments about, um, and here I'm going to demonstrate that I'm not a clever scientist, that if we were sort of one degree closer to the sun, we'd all burn up, or if the oxygen and carbon dioxide sort of makeup of the air was a little bit different we'd all die and it's it's all perfectly balanced and if you can follow the kind of now those arguments are amazing and if you're scientific they probably amaze you they amaze me in a kind of i don't understand it but it sounds amazing way but but he's not saying if you're clever enough you can follow a long chain of logic and come to the conclusion ah god must exist because then frankly god would be revealing himself just to the boffins and there'd be no hope for the rest of us the history students and the linguists. I was a history student, I should say. I'm not having a go at you if you're a historian. <laughs> that means, just by way of a side, that God treats everybody fairly. God is just in how he treats everybody. The conclusion of, of Paul's logic here is, therefore we are without excuse, the end of verse 20. Nobody has an excuse for being an atheist or worshipping another god or pretending to be an atheist. God treats everybody fairly. That doesn't mean he treats everybody the same. He doesn't have to treat everybody the same. He treats everybody fairly and some people graciously, extra graciously. But by its very nature, grace, forgiveness, mercy... It's not something that you merit. It's not something you deserve. 
I think this unsettles us sometimes because we, you know, we used to tell teaching our children, oh, you've got to treat everybody the same, and you know that's good with children. But imagine, imagine someone burgles your house. It's Monday, someone breaks into your house, they burgle your house, steal your dog, steal your cornflakes. Uh, you're really cross. The police come around, they catch them. They say, "Good news, uh, we've caught the burglars. What do you want us to do?" And you say, "Well, take them to take them to prison." The policeman says, "Quite right." Tuesday, someone else comes around, burgles your house, steals the cat, steals the toast. They say, what do you want to do? And you say, do you know what? I'm going to have mercy. Let them off. Wednesday, another burglar comes around, breaks into your house, steals what are we on now, the goldfish, the hamster, the sandwiches. Again, the police catch them. Remarkable conviction rate uh, in your street. And the policeman says, what do you want me to do? And this time you say, yeah, prison. Has that third burglar got any right to say, just a minute, you let the other guy off. That is not fair. You've got to treat me the same as the other guy. No, of course he hasn't. He's broken the law. Fairness only demands that he pays, pays the right price. The fact that you chose to be merciful to one of the three doesn't mean the other two can demand. God is always fair. But thank God he is merciful to some. All this means, by the way, is that, uh, that Paul's argument, where he's driving to, is, is, is to convince us that we have no excuse. We might not be actively thinking about suppressing God. So deep is our psychology that it's, it's very hard to explain, isn't it? But the problem is our end. Our problem, that the reason not everybody in the world worships the true God, is not an intellectual problem, but a moral one. We just don't want to. The problem isn't with God. Come on, God, why haven't you made yourself clearer? The problem is with us. We just don't want to know. If you're watching TV, this works less well nowadays in the days of digital TV, but um, if you're watching TV and, and that the signal starts to crackle, okay, and that the, the picture goes fuzzy, that there's two potential issues, aren't there? Two possible causes. One is that the signal beaming out from BBC headquarters is on the blink. In other words, it's a problem with the sender. The other possibility is your TV's broken. There's a problem with your aerial or whatever gets used nowadays. A problem with the receiver. Paul is saying there's no problem with the signal. God has made himself clear, but we, all of us, all of us, scramble the signal. We suppress the truth. We're not ignorant of it. And not only do we do that, the second key word is we exchange. We exchange the truth. Verse 21 through 23. Although they knew God, they didn't honour him as God. We don't want you as our God. We don't thank him. We pretend this world is just our own. We become futile in our thinking. Our hearts are darkened. Then claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged. There's the first exchange word. We exchange the glory of the immortal God for images resembling looking like people or birds or animals or creepy things. You can't stop worshipping, says Paul. Everybody's religious. Do you know that, by the way? Everybody is religious. If you walked in here this morning, you are a religious person. And if you'd stayed in bed, you would have been a religious person. Everybody at 10 a.m. on a Sunday morning or 10.30 a.m. on a Sunday morning worships. Some will do so in a church worshipping the Lord Jesus Christ. Some might go to another religious building and worship their God. 
Others will stay in bed and worship the comfort of a lion. Some will go to the golf course and worship the enjoyment uh, and pleasure uh, of sport. But we all worship, says Paul. It may, you may give a, a, your, your God, the thing that drives your life, a name, like Vishnu or Zeus or Jupiter or Allah. Or it may be just your money, your cash, your family. But everyone worships and serves. Notice that word, worships and serves. You give your life for something. When you stop worshipping God, you'll start worshipping something else, living for something else, because we just can't help it. Perhaps you know that. Maybe you're not a Christian here this morning. You just know that you are living for something. So we exchange the true God for something we've made up. But that's not the only exchange. Verse 25, they exchange the truth about God for a lie as well. There's a change of worship, a change of truth. And it's all done whilst we claim to be so wise. Verse 22, claiming to be wise, they become fools. When people turn away from God, very often they do so in a way that they present as, and perhaps even themselves believe, to be very clever. I was sitting next to someone at a dinner before a wedding, not recently, a long time ago, uh, and um, they sort of found out I was a, a minister, which is usually deaf to the conversation. Um, you can see in their eyes, they just want to sit anywhere else. And they said to me, um, oh, well, you know, I mean, they might have said that's very nice for you, I can't remember, but they said, of course, I, you know, I'm not a Christian because I'm a scientist. And I mean, it's an incredible thing to say. So, firstly, do you, you do know there are Christians who are scientists, don't you? Frankly, scientists who were, I mean, this guy had a couple of A-levels in science. I mean, you know, he wasn't a professor. But, but it's a way we convince ourselves. You know, I, I am I'm becoming wiser by rejecting the Christian faith. It's a hint, I think, of the Garden of Eden, that phrase. We think we're becoming wiser. Adam and Eve saw the fruit and thought, ah, oh, that'll make me wise. But it just makes you foolish. And so Paul's diagnosis of what we do is suppressing the truth that we all know and swapping out the true God for something else. Now, at this stage, it may be you're thinking, that's just, I can see that's what Paul says. It's just not true. It's not true in my experience. Perhaps if you're someone who'd say, no, I'm not Christian. It's just not true in my, I don't know God. Or perhaps you're thinking about family, friends, colleagues, housemates, and say, no, they, they don't know God either. Paul, I don't know what you're on about. And I think Paul would say back, well, that's exactly the point. He's not saying there's a moment where, I don't know, age 12, every human being says, right, I know God, and very consciously now, I'm going to say, I don't know God. It's much darker than that. There's a guy called Greg Barnes, and he gives the illustration of a, of a mother. Uh, a mother who gets a phone call from school. This mother has one son who she loves so much. Uh, and the headmaster phones up, and says, I'm really sorry, Mrs. Jones, but we've caught your son stealing. And Mrs. Jones just can't bear the thought that her little boy is a thief. And as the conversation goes on with the headmaster, she, it comes to her mind that actually a tenor did go missing from her handbag last week. But she thinks, well, it, it, I must have been careless. And then she remembers that, that her son did turn up with some new trainers that she hadn't bought him. But quickly she thinks, oh, it, it must have been a gift 
from a friend. As the headmaster explains what, what, what happened, she starts thinking, well, it must be that the teacher has taken against him. Uh, that a classmate has dobbed him in unfairly because they're jealous of his brilliance. And at the same time, Mrs. Jones, the mum, is both capable of, of totally denying the, the pretty obvious truth that's staring her in the face, whilst at the same time deep down kind of knowing it. That's what we're like. We give ourselves away. We suppress the truth, but it keeps popping up like that beach ball. Oh, we say we don't believe in God, but then we're terrified of death. Why? If you're going to die and that's it, why would you worry about death? We can't help it. It pops up. Oh, we say we don't believe in God. There's nobody above, above us. We're just creatures. It's just evolution. It's survival of the fittest. And then we start telling people some things are right and some things are wrong. Whatever that morality may be, it may be a kind of religious morality. It may be the kind of new morality. You must not tell people what to do with their bodies. It is wrong to say that two people of the same sex can't get married. We're suddenly bringing these oughts in. You must not do that. Where did that come from? We can't help it. We say we're just stuff. We're just collections of atoms, cells. We've been thrown together by space dust. And yet we behave as if we're real thinking beings. We're people who can make decisions and reason and love and argue and debate. But space gusts can't debate or argue or think. We suppress, 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 but we just can't help it. The truth keeps popping up. What we do, suppress and exchange. What is God doing, verses 26 through 32? Well, basically, he's revealing his wrath. That's how the whole thing started, verse 18. The wrath of God. Children, wrath means anger. And you see what he says in verse 18? One day in the future, God will show how angry he is. See that in verse 18? not what he says is it he doesn't say the wrath of god will be revealed one day when jesus returns but that is true it's just not what he's talking about he said is revealed now it is being revealed and the key word here it was suppressed and exchanged this time the key word is give up or gave up that's the phrase that comes comes in verse 24 therefore god gave them up gave people up in the lust of their hearts. It's there in verse 26. God gave them up to dishonorable passions. It's there in verse 28. Since they didn't see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind. You want to see God's anger at work? Says Paul, says the Holy Spirit. Just look at what human beings are doing. The punishment for sin, the anger being poured out, Paul says, is that God lets you do what you want. When we stop saying to God, thy will be done, his punishment is seen, his anger is seen in him saying to us, okay, thy will be done. He gives up. It's an incredible thing to hear, isn't it? God has just has given up. It doesn't mean flopped and thrown its hands up in despair. It is an active thing. The punishment for sin is more sin. Now, Paul's not denying that one day there'll be a judgment day. He, like the Lord Jesus, is very clear that one day Christ will return and judge the world. There is a hell as well as a heaven. But here, 
he is saying, the terrible thing when we turn away from God is God lets us keep going and gives us up. Three things he gives us up to. In verses 24 through 25, it's the lusts of our hearts and impurity. And then he focuses in, in verses 23 to 27, perhaps the, the part of the passage that, that, that sort of jarred when I read it uh, for some of us this morning. In verses 23 to 27, he gives us up to dishonorable passions. He starts focusing on the bedroom. And he says in those verses that same-sex sexual activity is something God let us, gave us up to engage in. See how he describes it? Both women-women and then male-male. He's pretty discreet. We don't need to go into graphic details. Verse 26, their women exchange natural relations for those contrary to nature. Men likewise gave up natural relations with women. There is something unnatural about this, Paul says. He's right, isn't he? How many societies have thought that the natural way to live is a man and a man rather than a man and a woman? Never mind if they're Christian or not. Why is it that we have so many campaigns to educate children, to educate companies with the pride agenda? If it's so natural and obviously okay, why do we need educating in it? You don't have to educate children and companies that heterosexual marriage and the sex that follows is is okay and good. We just know it naturally. It's woven into us. Yes, it's revealed in the Bible. We could find Bible verses to talk about sex and marriage. But it's just woven into who you are as human beings, says Paul. And it is blindingly obvious that it is wrong because it is unnatural. Your body itself tells the story. I know this is I know this is desperately unpolitically correct. But it's true. It's true. Uh, why does he pick on sexuality uh, so much in this paragraph? And first of all, note that he does. Sometimes people say, Why well, he was banging on about sex? But Paul does raise it as a, a a sort of almost like an emblematic, like the flag that shows most clearly what's gone wrong. He is going to talk about lots of other sins, sure. But this is the flag issue. And I think it's about the exchange thing again. Remember, exchanging is the key theme in this second half of the sermon. What did we do? Verse 25, we exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped the creature rather than the creator. We try to get rid of that huge, important distinction. There's a creator, that's God, and there's the creation, that's everything else. We try to push God off stage and say, no, there's not two things. God and the world, there's only one thing, the creation. And so we will live just for the one thing, for the created order. Of course, we don't call it creation. We call it our world or our rights or whatever it may be. But we will live for the creation. There are not two fundamental entities out there, the creator and the creation, just one creation. And that, I hope I'm trying to explain this well this morning, but... That is most clearly shown in our attitude towards marriage and sex. Because God created male and female bound together in marriage as a picture of 
the union between God in Christ and his people. In other words, and Paul says this really clearly in Ephesians 5, but it's woven throughout the scriptures. In other words, God says, male and female, two different things becoming one. Always meant to be a picture of the gospel. The fact that I, the Lord God, in the person of my son Jesus Christ, will unite myself with my people. Creator and creature, two things coming together and being bound together gloriously. Then Romans 1, Paul says, we try to get rid of the idea of there being a creator, so we're only left with one thing. And therefore, when we go for same-sex relationships, same-sex activity, you're sticking together not two different things that are becoming one, representing God and his people, but two things that are the same. Two women, two men. It is an outworking of the fact that you've denied God. Homosexuality is atheism in the bedroom, paganism in the bedroom. It's a denial of, of twoism, if you like. There are two things. And, and, and a working out there is only one. And actually that handing over runs out of the bedroom into the rest of life. In the last little paragraph there, verse 28 onwards, he lists this avalanche of sins that God gives us up to. We can't walk through every one of them, but do you not see yourself in that list somewhere? Envy, murder, strife, anger, in other words, deceit, maliciousness, disobedience of parents, children, see that? Heartless, ruthless, faithless, haters of God, slanderers. They are, I think, bound together by the fact that they come out of the debased mind. Verse 28, the mind has gone wrong. We think wrongly. And we don't even see there's a problem. And the climax, dreadful as it is, is in verse 32. This is where it's all going, says Paul. Although you lot, you human beings, including me, we all know... God's righteous decree, his law, that those who live that way, exchanging God, pushing him away, suppressing him, and then acting in all these different ways, that those who practice such things deserve to die, we not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. We're mad, says Paul. We know this way of living is wrong, all of us. We know we're going to be punished for it. We know we'll be judged, deserve to die. And how do we respond? Not only do we keep doing it, we encourage everybody else to do it too. We cheer when people get increasingly godless. It is not a coincidence that we've just had Pride Week. It's a fascinating name to call your movement. We should be proud of this way of living. And you should be ashamed if you oppose us. As Paul would absolutely understand Stonewall, the sort of LGBT uh, activist group. He would absolutely understand them giving awards to businesses. Well done. You are, you can have the rainbow, whatever, the rainbow award. You can come to our dinner. And you can come up front and we will applaud you. Well done for being so pro. All those things that we know God says are bad. Paul say, yeah, 
That is exactly what I'm writing about. And we say, we're proud. Let's march, let's celebrate. And be ashamed if you're not with us. I'm afraid this is one of those passages, I'm not afraid, it's God's word. It is one of those passages that just shows the distinction between how God sees the world and how we as a society do. We must stop saying things like, it's so brave for you to live in that way, even as Christians. Now, this isn't about being hateful to people or horrible or attacking or treating people unfairly. And I just don't have time to kind of nuance everything we might say in terms of how we deal with, I don't know, when the Stonewall activist comes to the office or whatever it may be, still less how we deal with our friend who's in a same-sex marriage. But let's not compromise and start saying it's brave or courageous. When God's Holy Spirit uses words like impure, dishonoring, dishonorable, unnatural. We have to hold our nerve because it's not good to try and tone down what God is saying. We'd just be joining in with exactly what Paul is saying, helping the suppression. If the church helps the suppression, what, what chances are there of the world ever hearing of the good news and that is where we are going to finish i did promise you that the no excuse was actually good news why why is it good news that in verse 20 we are without excuse and in 2 verse 1 we are without excuse well imagine if it was the opposite imagine if paul said therefore this great news i've got this news of salvation there is hope for those of you who've got a decent excuse for how you've lived That'd be a tragedy for us, wouldn't it? About eight years ago, I could tell you almost to the day if I'd bothered working it out, but eight and a half years ago, how old are you, Charlotte? Eight years and 11 months ago, uh, I was best man at my best friend's wedding in Sussex. Um, George, my wife, was due with our first child the next day. Um, I gave, gave the speech, finished the wedding. I was, I don't know, 250 miles away from home. So I started driving home. And I came through a Sussex village, uh, 30 miles an hour speed limit, Hadn't realised, please pull me over, I was doing 35. I said to them, I'm so sorry, my wife's due, I've got no points on my licence, I haven't been drinking, I didn't see the sign. They said, okay. I am confident that if I've had five pints of lager, sworn at the policeman, said, oh, I just want to go and see the football, get out of my way, they would have fined me. I had a, in their kind eyes, <laughs> sort of valid excuse. But the gospel, this saving news that Paul is going to expound, is not good news as long as you didn't realise what you have done. It's not good news as long as you haven't repeated your sin. It's not good news as long as you didn't grow up in church and ought to have known better. It's not good news as long as it wasn't sexual sin or homosexual sin. It's not good news as long as your sin didn't harm others. It's not good news as long as it wasn't deliberate or after you became a Christian. It's not good news as long as you're not in ministry or have worked for a charity, or served on a summer camp. No, there are no excuses for anything you've ever done, God says. And come and welcome and find salvation. As he pulls our excuses out of our hands, and we desperately want to justify ourselves, don't we? But I, but I, God, no excuses. 
And finally, when you realize you have nothing left, then you're in the place to realize how wonderful God's love is when he says to you, and you have no excuse for how wicked, dishonorable, impure you are, how foolish, how arrogant. I love you, come and find free salvation. You can bring nothing, so just take Come with no explanation, no reason, no bargaining, no justification, no offering. Just come. And I will welcome you. I will forgive you. God gave up three times in that passage, us, humanity, to sin. Just flick over. I promise this is it. Chapter 4 and verse 25. That giving up language comes three more times in Romans. Chapter 4, 25. Here is something else God gave up. Just from the end of the verse before. God raised from the dead, Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up. It's the same word, it's the gave up word. The Lord Jesus Christ, who was given up for our trespasses, our sins, and raised for our justification. God gave you humanity over to your sin. Fine, thy will be done, he said. But so much do I love you that I'm going to give up my own son for your sins, to pay for that sin. And then I'm going to raise him for your justification. We'll talk about what justification is more in the future. But a very simple level... He is your justification. He is the reason I can save you. Stop bringing your excuses to your justifications. He is raised and he is welcoming you. Christ is risen. He is in heaven. If you saw yourself this morning in that list, and I pray you did, if you felt the weight, the shock, the horror, Jesus is in heaven saying, come, that is why I died. And I will forgive you. Whether it's for the first time this morning or the hundredth, no excuses. And therefore, no bars come and welcome to Jesus Christ. Let me pray. Our Father, these are weighty words, and we're aware of their weight in our society in particular. I pray that anything I've said this morning that is unhelpful will, will fall away, but that your word will remain and bear fruit. We do want to be those who come to you empty-handed, with no excuses. And we praise you that the gospel is for those who have no excuse. So warm our hearts with the grace that you've shown us in Jesus. Might we trust that he is our justification. That nothing in our hands we bring. But simply to his cross we cling. Thank you for such wonderful, unconditional love. We praise you in the name of Christ. Amen.